You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. If you were visiting with us or new here today, we've been dealing with a topical series of messages entitled, After Death, What? Looking at the reality of death in the perspective of the Bible, which is quite different from the perspective of this world. We've considered death as a problem and as a judgment from God. We considered the last time I was with you two weeks ago, the death of Christ as the beginning of a conquest over death. And we bring really the second element of that into the picture today. Yes, it has sounded like Easter around here in in the singing we've done already with good reason. And I ask you to turn to a well-known text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a long chapter, and I'm not going to begin to try to bring out all the things that are in it. We may well return to it. In fact, I think surely we will return to this chapter during the series later on. But... For now, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3. Listen to God's Word revealed through His servant, the Apostle Paul. He writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Now let's move down in the text. We're not going to try to handle everything that's here. I'm going to pick it up at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But... Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is God's holy word. One of the best Christian novels, if you mean a novel written by an evangelical Christian with 
some kind of an evangelical purpose to it that I've read in many years is a book from 1994 called A Skeleton in God's Closet. The author is Paul Mayer. And Paul Mayer is a professor of New Testament and very well versed in the subject of archaeology, which particularly equipped him to write this book. He plots a very convincing storyline in which archaeologists in Palestine discover the authentic tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was from a town called Rama, Arimathea. And in that small town, they find a tomb previously unknown, which is authenticated to belong to Joseph of Arimathea. In that tomb, they find some rather dumbfounding things. Artifacts and written records surviving that look absolutely authentic, which point to a stone coffin found in that tomb containing the physical remains of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you would say, what an absurdity. And yet, the way the whole thing is developed, I would tell you it's, it's very convincing. The story, as, as at least it was said to be, was that Joseph of Arimathea, who we know was one of those who buried Christ, secreted his body away, did not seal him in the Jerusalem tomb, but rather had him moved to Ramah, his hometown, and buried there in that tomb. And this work of fiction is so well done that it proceeds to describe the cataclysmic effects that this discovery has on the whole world once it is trumpeted through the news media that the bones of Jesus have been found. People abandon the faith in droves. Churches are, are struggling, and even those who remain faithful and continue to worship in their minds are in a turmoil. How can this be? How could this be possible? And the tension remains right up to the end of the book in which, of course, the author reveals that this whole thing was an incredibly clever forgery, a hoax. And, of course, everyone rejoices. Happy ending. But nevertheless, it causes you to think, what if the authentic remains of Jesus would ever be found? When we affirm the Apostles' Creed, we say, you said it this morning, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Those two things go together. They're inextricably linked. The Bible says you cannot have the life everlasting without the resurrection of the body, and you will not have the resurrection of the body without the resurrection of Jesus Christ as its cause. Now, the last time I was with you two weeks ago, I showed how Scripture claims that the death of Christ was important as a, a conquest, so to speak, over death. It seems strange, it seems paradoxical to say that somebody died and that helped him conquer death, but nevertheless, that's the way the Bible paints it. We went to Hebrews 2 and saw there the idea that Jesus was like a, a champion, a military conqueror, who actually broke the iron reign of death that Satan held. Colossians 2.15 was another text which speaks about Christ triumphing over the power of Satan as a conqueror when he died at his cross. But I 
had to restrain myself the whole time in that last sermon to speak only about his death as a, a victory and hold back and not mention that which all of you wanted me to get to and, and say, well, of course, the death led to his resurrection. And that's what we're looking at today, that his glorious historic resurrection alongside his death on the cross are the great two cornerstones by which we say Jesus Christ conquered death. Now, we could go to numerous texts, but 1 Corinthians 15 is very key because it's one of the main places in the New Testament where Paul probably in most detail elaborates the idea of the consequences of Jesus' death. The gospel records tell us about the fact of it, the story of it happening, the going to the empty tomb and all of the surprise and all of those things. But 1 Corinthians 15 sort of applies it and says, all right, it happened, so what? What does it mean? What consequence comes from it? And the New Testament gospel is, of course, that Jesus died to make atonement for the sins of God's people, but without a bodily, real resurrection from the grave, the death of Jesus would be a dead end. It it would be incomplete. It would be of no effect. And if he did not rise as the gospel reports on Easter morning, then our faith in him would be nothing but a little wisp of, of smoke. It would be you know, kind of happy ideas that have nothing to stand upon. And any preaching of Christ that omits the concept of new life, resurrection life, in a Lord who truly lives himself is a gospel without power to change anybody. So our hope of eternity absolutely stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in this series of messages about after death, what I'm looking at, the different responses of the Bible to the whole subject and phenomenon of death and its horrors. And today, I would ask you to just hear, first of all, in verses 3 through 8 of this familiar text of 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to state it in a way I'm not really trying to be cute, but maybe it'll sound that way. My first point says this, all the Bible's eggs of eternal life rest in one basket called Easter. Everything that we could summon together, all the evidences or the hopes or anything else, are like eggs in an Easter basket. And if the Easter basket does not hold, then our resurrection hope does not hold. Millions of people today, you know, they might come to churches on Easter and celebrate it, but when it comes down to it, if you would really examine them and say, well, what, what is it you're looking for that will somehow give you a claim on eternal life in heaven with God? They would start talking about the behavior of their life. And they would say, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I try rather hard. I do the best I can. I surely make many mistakes and many sins and, I, and many things I could be indicted for, but I suppose in the gallery of world people. I'm, I'm sort of B grade at least, and I think God will let me through. I will have done enough that good credits and, and philanthropic efforts and acts of kindness and so on, on my part, will see me into heaven. That's really what many people think. The scales will tip for them based on how they've lived. 
And amazingly, many of the people who really think that would call themselves Christians. But you see, the Bible absolutely denies this. In Christianity, eternal life lived in the presence of God has nothing to do with your works. Nothing. No work that you can do at all will impress God. No amount of them stacked one upon another, no matter how high into the sky they would reach, will achieve for you eternal life. You'd better understand it if you never have. The teaching of the Bible is that eternal life rests 100% on a miracle of God's grace. It's as if the Bible would tell us that there are two worlds, and it does tell us this. There's the visible and the invisible, or I would rather call it the natural and the supernatural world. We can't see the supernatural world, but we can see the natural world. Now, sin in the natural world, the Bible teaches, makes it impossible for us to find a bridge to cross from the natural realm into the supernatural. How will these two worlds ever come together? How will we ever move from our life in the natural world into the supernatural? Jesus in Luke 16 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus emphasized there is a great gulf, a grand canyon fixed between these two worlds. You do not, by your efforts, cross between one to the other. If there's going to be a breakthrough, if there's going to be a bridge from the natural world to the supernatural world, it won't be from where you are now to there. It must be that the supernatural breaks through into the natural. That's the teaching of Scripture. And the breakthrough comes at the point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.4 is a declaration that says Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now, some people would read that and say that maybe he wasn't the Son of God before he was resurrected, and then he was. No, it doesn't say that. It's saying that his resurrection is the declaration, the obvious revealing of the fact that this is the Son of God the one who supernaturally came to break in to the natural realm and make a passage between the two. Now, what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, briefly, and I'm not going to spend very much time here, is, is Paul's brief recital and, and broad summary of evidence and testimony about the resurrection that he received. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, and so he He tells you, very frankly, I received this thing and I'm passing on to you the things that occurred of first importance that these truths I'm going to tell you had hard eyewitness facts attesting to them. Now, you've been to enough Easter sermons in your lifetimes, most of you, that I will not, I promise you, go through this morning any great development of the so-called evidences of the empty tomb. But you can think of some of them, the the idea of the great stone rolled away somehow, the guard confounded and scattered and having to make up a, having to have the leaders make up a story to cover for what happened, the grave clothes lying there just as if they were dropped in place, the enemies unable to produce the body, the the disciples utterly startled and surprised themselves by this thing, confounded by it, even afraid of it. 
and then their lives changing and turning around as they did as Jesus appeared, not just to one or two, but Paul emphasizes here, hundreds. Paul says 500 people who saw him alive, many of them were still alive when he wrote only a few decades later. He's obviously trying to say this is an eyewitness issue that he's talking about, and he's impressing you with the fact that faith in the risen Lord Jesus is not a blind leap in the dark. The supernatural did break in. God did bring his natural son in flesh alive again in a glorious way, and the fact of it stands established and firm beyond a reasonable doubt. Many lawyers and those who are experts in evidence have commented that the evidence for the resurrection would stand well in court, in in many courts of the land, in terms of a fact that could not be considered to have happened any other way. And so we understand that it is not as if the early church invented the resurrection. They said, well, hey, we've just lost. Our leader's been killed. We need something spectacular to revive our movement. Let's pretend he came back from the dead and nobody will know. First of all, none of them would have done that because they all were absolutely afraid and disheartened. But what we really see is not that the church invented the resurrection, but the resurrection invented the church. And when disciples went out into the world, we read in the book of Acts, the whole theme of Acts is what were they doing? They were witnesses of the resurrection. They were going and telling the world, this man Jesus who lived among us is risen from the dead. When Paul had his trial before the the, uh, Jewish authorities at the end of the book of Acts, he said, it is for the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. And so did Peter declare in his very first sermon right there in Jerusalem where Jesus was killed. He declared in that sermon, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, by rising him, bringing him out from the dead. He is the Lord. He is the ruler now at God's right hand because he is resurrected. Jesus declares that in another setting completely in Revelation 1.18. There we find the words of Christ as revealed to John. And he says, I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am now alive evermore. And I hold the keys to death and hell. You see that consequence? Because he Himself did battle with Satan. He conquered the grave. He holds the keys. He's the Lord over death and hell. He holds authority. He's the ruler. And he is the one who is able to reverse death's otherwise dominating, inescapable rule over men and women. And so Paul says so frankly as he begins this chapter 15, either Jesus is raised or everything we believe is a delusion. We are fools. Why are we getting together every Sunday morning? What nonsense. What a waste of time. If Christ is not raised, in fact, we're we're not just, you know, maybe have the same level of stupidity of the rest of the world. We're even more stupid than anybody else in the world to believe in an absolute fiction. But of course, Christ has been raised. And our hopes are not a colossal futility. And so I say all the eggs of our hope 
for eternal life rest in a basket called Easter. Now, let's move beyond that. And in the second place, grapple with this part, particularly the part of this text found from verses 20 to 23. Because I think here in the center of this text of 1 Corinthians 15, you really get down to the so what of it. Okay, I know Jesus was raised. I've read the gospel accounts. But so what? What does it mean? What, what consequence comes from it? Well, now we're going to hear this wonderful promise of the text as Paul is giving God's word here as it was given to him that Christ bestows his resurrection life on everyone who believes in him. Christ gives away, he bestows his own resurrection life on all who believe in him and thereby belong to him. What he did in past history is something in which he desires you to have a share. Notice verse 20, an important word is there. Christ has indeed, a couple of important words I'll just elaborate. Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's take that fallen asleep business for a moment. That, of course, is a a biblical figure of speech, a polite way of talking about they died. And the New Testament uses that word in a very specific way only for those who are dead in Christ. It never says of those who are without Christ as Savior that they have fallen asleep. No. Their, Their experience is going to be very different. But those who know Christ and have died and have preceded us in this world are not blotted out of existence. We'll we'll have occasion in coming weeks to see how we understand from the Scripture their souls are alive in the presence of God. They have a conscious knowledge of God and presence with God, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. And so this figure of speech applies. They are fallen asleep. There's an old Negro spiritual that, that... plays upon that and talks about the great waking up morning. I wish somebody could sing that one for us. The great waking up morning when the sleep of Christians is going to be come to full fruition in great jubilation. But then the other important word that's in verse 20 is this word first fruit. It comes from a specific background, a festival that Israel celebrated called the Feast of Weeks, which was really like a harvest festival. And during the Feast of Weeks, the priest or some designated person would take a big shock of wheat and and it would be waved before the people. And it was a symbol of the coming harvest. The idea, well, here's, you know, we put cornucopias on Thanksgiving tables and so on to represent a harvest. Well, this sheaf of wheat was Here's the very first piece of a great harvest we trust we're going to reap. And that's exactly what the resurrection of Jesus is. The first fruit of a tremendous harvest. His resurrection was just the prototype for millions more. The first break in the dam with a great flood to come after it. The resurrection work of Christ Theologically speaking, we call it a federal act, something done by him to represent others and to be passed on to others. In John 14, 19, even before he died, Jesus predicted, because I live, you also shall live. 
his plan, even as he expected and predicted that he would rise, was that it wasn't just a phenomenon for himself, as if to say, well, look what I'm going to do. But because I come back to life, you also shall live. Resurrection power in Christ is transferable. Now look at verse 22 for a moment. Here's an important thing about this federal, we've talked about this in other weeks. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We talked about Adam as a great representative of humanity that that brought us death in the first place. And it says there very clearly that from Adam every human being inherits death. Notice very carefully that that verse does not say because of Christ every single human being will inherit his life. It says those who are in Christ will inherit life. Now that is a a different group than the group of all humanity. And so there are two distinct possibilities for every one of us today, that, that either we remain in Adam, having inherited death and we can't escape from it, or we have joined the family of eternal life, having inherited the power and the consequence of the resurrection of Jesus. Notice what verse 23 says will happen. What's going to happen? There are these resurrections happen sequentially. In turn, first Christ, the first fruit, and then when he comes at his final coming, we're going to get into all these things, not today. When he comes, those who belong to him, those who belong to him, will receive their resurrection just as Christ received him. Now, I want to hone in on this. Who are those who belong to him? Who's included in that? Can we know in advance who is included in that? Is this some kind of a spiritual club that certain people belong to and other people might want to belong to but couldn't gain entry even if they want it? I believe that there's a really good place to to answer this question in just two verses of another book of Scripture, and that is the Gospel of John, chapter 6. You might turn there. John 6, verses 39 and 40. When we ask the question, who are those who belong to Christ who are going to be resurrected when he returns to history? Well, here's how John 6, 39 and 40 answers. First, in John 6, 39, we read this prediction of Jesus. He said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all them he has given to me, but that I would raise them up at the last day. Now, be patient. This is the mystery side of the answer. Jesus is saying those who are going to be raised up at the last day are a company determined by God the Father and known by Him and God the Son, a great company of people. Now, most of you know that we're talking here and getting into the borders of the doctrine of election. The the idea that God, by His sovereign will, knows from all eternity who is going to be saved, who is going to be righteous and raised in Christ at the end. And so it's saying here there's a company of people and The Father, in effect, delivers this company over to the Son and says, Son, take care of them. Don't lose any of them. Don't let one of them stray. Because I hope to see them raised at the last day. And the Son says, That is my task. Father, I will do it. But now, if that leaves you in mystery, 
Add verse 40, John 6, 40, because right after it, it says this. It gives a visible measurement, a way for us to see in this world who this mystery company is. They become identified. When Jesus says, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes on him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't that an easier verse for you to get your hands around and understand? You know, the first is a mystery company. The Father knows this. How did he determine that? We don't have those answers. We don't know who he's determined. But now it's determined in a way that we can see it. We can understand it. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes on him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see how verse 40 gives you the practical handle on the whole thing. How can I know that I am one of these who belong to him, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 23, who will be raised up when Jesus comes? Well, he told me, if I have looked to him and called upon him and put exclusive trust in him, then I belong to him. So that every man or woman or boy or girl who by faith names Jesus Christ as the Lord who rules over death and trusts in him has a resurrection hope of eternity. Now, yes, this this company, these people have their roots in God's mysterious grace and election, and it is God who awakens the faith by which we call and and all that. But you don't need to get lost and be troubled over that. The part you need to concentrate on is what you need to do. The human choice that you need to exercise that Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, 10 has an arrow pointing right to 1 Corinthians 15, 23. If you believe these things and confess these things, you are those who belong to him whom he intends to raise at the last day. And so it's not such a mystery after all. One more thing to add to this whole concept of the consequence of Christ's resurrection seen in us is that it's not only about being raised up at the last day. It is that, and that's the great final consummation, of course. But there's actually something more to it than that. That seems very far off. You know, you know how we all struggle with the concept of the return of Christ. We would say we believe in it. We would say, oh, yes, you know, if our faith is straight doctrinally, we would say Jesus could come today, and we're ready to confess. But most of us... It's just not too real. It seems way out there. And our death, our own death isn't too real unless we happen to be mortally ill. And so the idea of a resurrection body someday is a way off thing. But look, this resurrection of Christ has an impact on every Christian in this day as well. You, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and that God has raised him from the dead have a resurrected life right now. Romans 6, 4 says, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may have new lives. 
Second Corinthians 5.17 says it another way. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He's made new. The old is gone and the new has come. Possibly Romans 8.11 is a capstone text here which says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Are you indwelt by the spirit of God? Well, if you're a Christian, you are. That's the declaration of the New Testament. Unless the Holy Spirit of God is the one bringing you alive and giving you faith and giving you this new life, you have no part of Christ. We are given the Holy Spirit as God's down payment and seal for that great resurrection morning when we will have those new bodies. But the first stirrings of that new life is underway now. And the gradual transformation so slowly degree by day. I can't see it happening in me, but people who would compare me to 10 or 20 or 30 years ago say, oh, you know, God's done a couple good things in you, Michael. Take, take encouragement, and I, I try to believe them. It's hard for us to see the change happening in ourselves, but it's happening. The Holy Spirit is working in these still imperfect and yet redeemed bodies of ours with that new life of Christ. So in conclusion, along with 1 Corinthians 15 today, I would, I would ask this, why should it be thought incredible that God can raise people from the dead? God's resurrection miracle that opened a tomb and raised the body of Jesus is something he wants to give to weak, ordinary, deeply flawed, struggling people like you and me. And it not only will impact us some great day when Christ returns and all the saints are raised glorious with him, it will change us even today. He's the God of power who comes into lives that are powerless and weak and struggling to give us new ways to live. You know, the resurrection of Jesus really is the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. When medical people today, you know, somebody's knocked down in a traffic accident, what's the first thing the medic's going to do or the nurse or whoever arrives at the accident? They're laying there prone in the road, don't appear to be moving. What are you going to do right away? Check for a pulse. Do they have a pulse? Are they alive? Well, similarly, when we want to know if a professing believer in Christ is truly on the path of resurrection life, headed for a new body one day when Christ gloriously returns, we check for a pulse to see if the Holy Spirit is evident in that life. Are the fruits of the Spirit and the graces of the Holy Spirit at work there? And other people see it better than you do. I I assure you of that. But even if you may be a weak and struggling Christian, God's promise is that if you are in Christ, His Holy Spirit is stirring in you today. And so when Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.3, he told Christian disciples of his day, in His great mercy, God has given us a new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade that is kept in heaven for you. Do you know that? Do you know 
that you are one of His people, one who belongs to Him, as 1 Corinthians 15.23 said. Have you consciously stepped out of imprisonment to the inevitable death you inherited from Adam into the new life of Christ? And if you're not certain, and you may not be, some here may not be, you can call on God today and say, Lord God, Lord Jesus Christ, I am dead. I feel helpless and powerless. Give me this new miraculous life of yours to begin in me today and tomorrow and forever. And God will surely answer that prayer. Scores of people right here will attest that he will. And I say to you who are Christians, stand fast. Stand fast in the time when it seems even that your resurrection life is a candle burning at low ebb. And long with Paul for that great desire of every Christian that he expressed in Philippians, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Isn't that what we pray for every day? The early scientist Blaise Pascal wrote these words. He said, without Jesus... Death is horrible. With Jesus, it is holy and kind and the everlasting joy of every true believer. May you come into that settled faith. May God get the praise as he gives you that faith. Our Father, we pray for the growth of resurrection hope. We pray for those who possess it and somehow don't feel it. For those who have trusted Christ and think they can do something to make you discouraged with them that you'll give up and and they won't come into their heavenly reward. Give them a brighter hope. And for those who don't know it at all, who are just resting in their own works, drive out that false notion. May they throw themselves in trust on Jesus, the one who lives and who promises true resurrection to all who trust in him. We rejoice in this hope together. In Jesus' name, amen.